You're listening to the Mind Your Business Podcast, episode number 120. Today, I'm talking to my special guest about the three steps to changing the limiting beliefs that are keeping you broke. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm James Wedmore, and I've built a multiple seven-figure internet business that offers the financial freedom to do what I want, when I want. And I'm the first to say that hard work and hustle are not essential ingredients for your success. So how do you build a thriving business from the inside out? Now with over 800,000 downloads, this is the Mind Your Business Podcast. All right. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, James Wedmore here. And thank you so much for tuning into the Mind Your Business Podcast here. Wow. Episode 120. Moving right along. And again, another fantastic guest that I've interviewed today that I'm just so honored to have on the show. Today, we're going to talk about the money myths, the limiting beliefs, the blocks that we tend to have when it comes to money and abundance. And as an entrepreneur and a business owner, this stuff is important. And, you know, my special guest, Julianne Cairns, wrote a book, phenomenal book called The Abundance Code. And it identifies these seven money myths, these limiting beliefs or blocks around money. And, you know, I only read the book like a year or two ago. And I'm like, yep, that's me. Yep, that's me. Oh, still got that. And, you know, I try my best to be a student and my own teacher in my life. And, you know, this is always, this is a common topic that we bring up, limiting beliefs, belief systems, and of course, money and abundance. I think Julie has done a fantastic job in this episode. She will break down a three-step process for how we can identify and shift these beliefs and step into a world of more abundance. And I am constantly finding ways to do that in my life and in my business. And so I think this is going to be a fantastic episode. I want to check in with you guys really quick. However, give you a quick update. Summer is officially over. You know, I did a huge batch in August with a ton of guests that I've been really dying to get on the show. And then I've just kind of come back and let some time settle and and I'll re-listen to the episode and then do this intro. So summer is now officially over. As I'm recording this, We are jumping into another live launch for my signature training program, Business by Design. So there might be some info at the end of this episode about that. So it's a very fun, exciting time for me. We get to share a lot of cool strategies and tips for growing your digital business online using video. And then I have my live event. And this is pretty exciting because we are about to hold the largest live event that we've ever held before. And thanks to my team, we're also able to hold that event in our hometown of Laguna Beach, which makes it extra, extra special. So our goal is to have over 250 people. And the goal is actually 250 people here (laughs) at this event. We've never done that before. We've never ran a 250 person event. I'm hoping we'll get 250. But so far, we have over 120, 130 people registered, which is very exciting. I can feel the momentum building, the anticipation, the energy. So it's going to be really exciting. And for you, our listeners who have attended events in the past, you guys know we run events a little slash a lot differently than anyone else in the industry. And I'm really proud of that. It's very much more experiential, a lot more exercises, a workshop style, just connections and networking with the groups, a lot of peer-based content. So it's really fun. This is an event just for our customers of Business by Design. And I think that's something that also makes it really special because everyone's kind of on the same page. They're on the same wavelength. We're having the same conversation. So we can have a kind of a, a bit of a more advanced conversation and and go places that maybe you wouldn't be able to go if you just kind of had this free for all anybody in. So that's something I'm just like really excited about. And I just wanted to update you guys about that because I'm, you know, 10 years into this, 10 years ago in November that I had the idea to create an online bartending school called Bartend for Profit. That's when I registered the domain right around Thanksgiving weekend. And I'm constantly looking for ways to push myself And I don't think that's the right way. I almost feel like I want to reword that. 
I'm constantly asking what's next and looking at where I can step into serving in a bigger way and challenging my beliefs and my thinking about what I think I'm capable of, what is possible for me, can I really do this? And even times when it comes back and it's like, well, it's going to be stressful or a lot of work or blah, 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 I start to challenge that. What if it wasn't stressful? What if it wasn't a lot of work? What if it was fun? What if it was light? What if it was easy? And this is a great example of that this is something that we've never done before. And my team is definitely up for the challenge. I'm up for the challenge and it's very exciting. So a lot of fun stuff happening here at Wedmore HQ with the team. And I'm just super proud of them and everything that they're accomplishing. So anywho, without further ado, I really want to get into today's episode. It's such an important topic. I don't think we can talk about it enough. Again, my special guest is the author of The Abundance Code, How to Bust the Seven Money Myths for a Rich Life Now. I will link up this book in the show notes. It is definitely recommended. It's a recommended book by James. I loved it. It's a simple read, but these are seven myths that you got to know. And here's a little warning. She's not going to reveal all of them. I asked her not to reveal all of them on the call to encourage you guys to go read the book. And here's why. It's one thing to listen to a podcast. It's another thing to get lost in a book and just like get inside the reader's head and just really immerse yourself in a topic. I think it can really be transformative if you allow it to be. But we will go over a lot of the myths and we're going to go over the three-step process for changing these blocks or beliefs for you so you can step into more abundance. Now, Julie's mission is to empower people to live an abundant life free from false beliefs. She didn't just write the book, The Abundance Code, but she also spearheaded the Abundance Code documentary, which is also worth seeing. Now, Julie is trained as an economist, and she began her career in Japan, where she received a scholarship from the Japanese Ministry of Education and co-founded and ran an English school. She then worked at the Reserve Bank of Australia and in 2001 co-funded Trading Pursuits Group, a financial markets education company where she is managing director. She also serves as a director of the AMA Australia Foundation and she is my good friend and today's special guest on the podcast. So without further ado, let's play that interview right now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am here with Julie Ann Karens, author of The Abundance Code, a phenomenal book that I just love, 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 love. And when I, I read it and then immediately I saw her in person, we're in the same mastermind group. And the first thing I said was, this is an amazing book. And I have her on the show with us. Julie, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. So let's just dive right into it. You want to tell us a little bit first about what is the Abundance Code all about and what led you to writing that? Sure. Okay. So the full title of the book is The Abundance Code, How to Bust the Seven Money Myths for a Rich Life Now. So one of the core concepts of the book is what are these seven money myths and where did they come from? Why are they important? All that sort of stuff. And to let you know how I kind of got to understand that so many people carry limiting beliefs about money that are holding them back, let me just go a little bit into my backstory, and that'll give you an idea of kind of how I came to this idea. So I grew up in Canada. My parents are Australian. So I actually now live in Australia. I live in Sydney, Australia. But I spent my childhood until about the age of 16 in Canada. And when I was really young, my dad, who was quite a well-educated surgeon with a double specialty, was a really successful guy. And he and my mother had invested quite well in real estate as well. So they'd kind of become... They'd reached all of their dreams in life, put it that way, by about the age of 40. They had, you know, more money than they needed. They had a wonderful lakefront house that they'd built, had architect designed. They had a couple of airplanes. They were hobby pilots, so they owned a couple of airplanes. They were collecting art. They were having fabulous parties, and life was fantastic. And then they started to drink. And I'll come back to why I think they started to drink because it's relevant to the whole limiting beliefs about money thing. But basically, 
they started to drink heavily when I was about eight years old. And then by the time I was 11, they'd broken up. And then within a couple of years, had lost all of the money. Wow. And I don't even know how. But anyhow, I ended up living with my mother. My dad went back to Australia. And we had virtually nothing. You know, we were living pretty much assisted by welfare. My mother had declared bankruptcy. And so I'd gone from this incredibly privileged upbringing and childhood to, you know, the shoe on the other foot. Sometimes I say, you know, it was like having a really crappy role in a game of snakes and ladders, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It just went like from the top, all the way down to the bottom. And obviously, you know, at such a young age, that had a really big impression upon me, you know, and it shaped me in a lot of ways. And I think I spent, you know, the ages from about 11 when my parents broke up to about 15, kind of depressed, basically. And I didn't go to school much. I wagged school. That's an Australian term. I skipped school Mm. as often as I possibly could. And uh, I just, you know, was not in a good frame of mind. And then something sort of kind of switched in me at about the age of 15. And I realized, okay, look, I really just don't like this lifestyle of, you know, having no money and everything always being a stress about money. But I'm the only one who can change that in my life now. I can't rely on my parents anymore. So at that age, I decided, right, I'm going to have to take the bull by the horns and I'm going to have to do something about this. So I started to actually get very studious, take my studies very seriously. And at the age of 16, I moved to Australia to live with my dad and went to university, studied finance, economics, mathematics, Japanese, anything I could that I thought was going to help me get rich. This was like my one life goal at that point. I just wanted to have the lifestyle that I had enjoyed as a child. Hmm. And so I ended up going into, you know, the finance business, finance industry, working for a merchant bank. And my partner and I at the time, we built up a big real estate portfolio, kind of did a lot of the steps that my parents had done and amassed a lot of wealth. And then things started to go a little bit awry. You know, we made some kind of silly business decisions, invested in a couple of things we didn't know anything about, like Indian takeaway restaurants and a chain of flower shops, like totally random stuff. And, you know, stuff where the stock is completely perishable. And, you know, we didn't have very good systems in these businesses. And so, Some people were basically ripping us off because they were very much cash-based businesses. Anyway, long story short, we lost a lot of money. So that was kind of my roller coaster wealth cycle number one. And then we decided, all right, well, we'll focus back on our business, which was teaching people how to trade financial markets. And we'll just do what we know because obviously the problem was doing things that we don't really understand that well. And so we built that business up. And that was going great. And then the global financial crisis hit in 2008. And for a number of reasons, some of which are obvious, some of which are not, we ended up in another financially difficult situation and basically this time pretty much facing bankruptcy. So this was roller coaster ride number two. And at that time, I don't even, I'm not even sure what triggered this thought in me, but I was about 40 at that time. That was the same age my parents had been when they'd hit their financial crisis Mm -hmm. in their life. And I just sort of stepped back and I went, wow, this is really a lot like the situation I experienced when I was a kid. And my parents were going through the same thing I'm going through right now. And I wonder if I believe that this is how things should go. I wonder if these roller coaster cycles of wealth and loss in my life are happening because that was my childhood experience. And that one thought kind of crystallized a lot of ideas for me because prior to that, I had been coaching people in our trading business. And my job had been to coach people who were having difficulty making our trading systems work. And what I had already been finding was that 
usually the problem was not with the system. It was the same system we taught everybody else. The problem was not with the markets. It was the same market everybody else was trading. The problem was that they would sabotage themselves by not following the rules in some way or another. It wasn't always the same way, but the rule was broken in some way. Some rule was broken and they were sabotaging their own success. And so I thought all these pieces came together and I went, oh my gosh, we all do this. We all want to succeed and yet we undo our own success with actions that we don't even understand why we're doing them. And they stem back to our belief Hmm. about how the world should go. And one thing I want to just interject with, and thank you for sharing this story. It's so fascinating. We all undo our own successes, but you don't, most of us don't even recognize that we're doing that, correct? Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, often it takes a situation like the one I faced where you're like really on the precipice and you're going, oh my God, like <laughs> I'm really in trouble here. I've got to figure out what the hell is going on you know, that kind of dark night of the soul moment. And that moment was the aftermath of 2008 for me. And so I really took the opportunity to start looking at my belief system. And someone had given me a book, a really good book called The Power of Your Subconscious Mind Mm. by, I can't remember the guy's first name. His last name is Murphy, Robert Murphy, I think. Anyhow, he wrote this book in 1963 And it's an excellent book about just how our subconscious code really determines what we then play out later in our life. And this code we kind of take on as children. And so this this was not a new idea. I mean, he wrote that book in 1963. I went through my own kind of subconscious code revision after 2008. And what ended up happening was... My company, which at that time was about $3 million in debt, by 2012, which was only four years later, we were completely out of debt and had about $3 million in cash in the bank. So that was a $6 million turnaround in four years in basically a recession. And just to be Um, clear, like you attribute this to a change in your belief system. I do. Wow. I love it. And I, I just want to, for the record, I, I did it. It's Joseph Murphy, Power of Your oh, Subconscious you. Mind. We'll link it up in the show notes. I remember reading this book myself years ago. I love this book. It's kind of like the one that you like stumble on an old like used book bookshelf. And yeah. you're like, what is this thing? And it's such a great book. It is such a great book. So, yeah, basically putting all that together, what I learned from that book, from other, I just started reading ravenously on this topic. And also the work that I was doing with my clients who were learning to trade the financial markets. Once I was on to this thing of belief change, then I really could dig in and figure out, okay, what was the belief that was tripping them up and look at trying to help them change their beliefs and ended up, you know, running a belief change workshop in our financial markets education business, you know, which at the time seemed kind of random. But this is I guess the key message that I really want people to understand is that beliefs are so important. You know, if you're an entrepreneur and you have your own business, then you are the driving force behind your business. Regardless of whether you have your own business, you're the driving force behind your own life. And so if you're not willing to examine your beliefs, then I can guarantee that there's some faulty code in there that is going to trip you up. Mm. And I hate to be kind of like, you know, negative. (laughs) (laughs) But that's basically the truth because what I ended up finding out through dealing with hundreds and hundreds of clients is that there are what I call the seven money myths. There are seven core beliefs about money that most people in our Western society and particularly people who were raised in Christian religious traditions have taken on. And the big contribution that I wanted to make, because, you know, Joseph Murphy had already done great work on the subconscious mind, as had many others. But what I found was that the most difficult part of belief change, there's three basic steps to belief change. No matter what process you follow, there's three essential steps. And the first step is identifying what your limiting beliefs are. 
And this is the most difficult step because yeah. the beliefs are subconscious. So they're below the level of your conscious awareness. And they can be very hard to grab onto. So the contribution I wanted to make was to help people with this most difficult step by identifying the top seven limiting beliefs that most people have. And those are what I call the seven money myths. So, okay, that's that's amazing because that's kind of where I'm going here, which is something I feel like I've struggled with. Okay, if I have a limiting belief, what is it? And if I yeah. if we knew what it was, would, would it still be there? Right. So you go over the seven in the book, but are we limited to that seven? Like, how do we even know if it's a limiting belief or it's keeping us? Yeah, yeah. It's a really great question. So basically the key indicator that you have a limiting belief on board is that you're experiencing frustration. Hmm. If you're experiencing frustration in your life, and I'm not talking about, you know, one-time frustration like, you know, the key won't, you know, turn in the door. <laughs> yeah. And I'm a little bit frustrated. No. Like every time I go to open that door, the key won't turn. You know, like a repeated pattern of something not working out. And you're so frustrated because you've tried this and you've tried that and you've tried the other thing. You know, coming back to the door analogy, you know, you put oil in the lock, you put some graphite in there, whatever. You've tried a bunch of things to try and get that key to turn. It still won't do what you want it to do. That's kind of the frustration I'm talking about. So in business, that might be, you know, yeah, well, I built the website, you know, and nothing happened. And then I built the <laughs> funnel and, you know, and I did this and I did that. And, you know, I've systemized the processes, whatever it is. And, and I'm still not getting the results that I want. Even though that same process I see working for other people. That's another key indicator. Right. So if you, you were, know? just for a moment, like if we go back to your investment trading and training business, you feel like you could make the system that you teach even more, like infinitely more simple and dummy proof. And if people don't have those, the right beliefs in place, that they're either going to mess up the system or... And I've seen this happen. I've seen this even with myself. Like, this is fascinating. Hopefully, we'll get into this. Or maybe the the system will work and they'll have an experience similar to what you had where they're like, they'll make the money and then they'll lose it quickly. Yes, so exactly. So it isn't just, and this is something no. I so want to yeah. communicate, it's not just the system, the strategy, or the steps. Gosh, that's so huge. So listen, I really want people to read your book because <laughs> I loved it. So I don't want you to share all your seven minutes. Like we got to give, you all know, right. leave people wanting more. What's like one or two that just kind of give people a taste of what you talk about? Sure. Well, the number one myth, and this is kind of like the core myth that all of the others kind of revolve around is the myth of scarcity. So it's like money doesn't grow on trees. It's hard to make money. Ways not, want not. You know, if you find yourself saying things like, I don't know if I can afford that, you know, I'm worried about my financial future. I don't know if I'm going to have enough to retire. You know, all those sort of fear-based ideas track back to this idea of scarcity, which is essentially the idea that there's not enough to go around. There's not enough for everyone. And because there's not enough for everyone, we have to compete for what mm. there is. Yes. Um, so scarcity throws up a very strong desire to compete rather than to collaborate. It creates emotions like jealousy, envy, the desire to kind of, even when you do get some money, you know, when people get a bit of money and then they spend it on flashy stuff so that they'll look like they have a lot of money. Yeah. That's kind of tracking back to that desire to compete. Sorry to interrupt, but I know one area where I, it was really prevalent for me is when I started selling and there would be like this sense of guilt that I was taking money away from people. Right. Yeah. Like just like, Oh my gosh, like what if they don't have enough money to feed their family after this? And it wasn't like they were showing evidence that they were broke or anything. It was just, there was this inherent sense of guilt that I'm taking away from them. And you trace that back, man, that is scarcity. Yeah, so absolutely. True. Because you're looking at it like a fixed pie, not like, yes. you know, I mean, when you revise that belief and you come back to the idea of selling and you can come to selling with, I have something of value 
to share with these people that's going to transform their life for the better, then you're not taking anything away from them. There's right. a value exchange totally. going on, which is totally reasonable and right and good. What's and, another myth that you want to share that comes to mind for you? Well, you mentioned one where people make money, you know, they get the system working. It's yep. not the problem they have in their belief system is not about making money, then they lose it. Mm -hmm. And that is definitely one that I had on board. Easy come, easy go. So yeah, I experienced my wealth roller coaster was that gain and loss cycle, gain and loss cycle, because I had a very strong, easy come, easy go mentality on board with my beliefs. I've, uh, Another one oh, that people have along those lines sometimes, it's mm -hmm. sometimes not easy come, easy go, but it's more money, more problems. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, as you gain money, you know, this belief tells you that everything's just going to be super complicated in your life and stressful. And so going back to that, that question, you're looking for where you're getting frustration in, in the realm of money, business, selling, anything that's really attached to money. For me, I remember when this showed up, I think I've spent just the last year to 18 months really working on this where I got really good at making money, but you'd see, you just look at your P and L's and you'd go like, Whoa, why are my expenses so high? It was like, Where's it? yeah, it was Where's like, it we, we were more profitable when we were making like a third of the revenue and, right. and you know, you, you can clean that up. But I was very clear, like, that's my own stuff. Like there's something there of a of a worthiness or a deserving, I don't feel like I can keep this money, some sort of guilt, some sort of scarcity that was still there. And I just think this stuff is so, so important. So this must be why, you know, I, I think back to, I think it was about 2006, the movie, The Secret comes out and yeah. it was just the biggest craze. And I really love that movie because I think it, for the first time, at least in my opinion, I was still, I was introduced to that never heard of any other concept before that but i think it was kind of a gateway drug it was like a mainstream appeal to a deeper world that people could then go down but there was a lot of like cynicism like people would you know do the vision boards or close their eyes and you know i, I visualize it why isn't it there and i think this yeah. is what you're hitting on is this is why that stuff doesn't work by itself but we actually just did a vision board party in the office but yeah by itself i guess it's useless if your beliefs aren't you know. Well, I don't think it's useless. That's probably too harsh a word, okay. <laughs> a word for it. But I do think that it's out of sequence often. Mm. So when it comes to belief change, as I said, there's three steps. doesn't really matter what technique you're using. They kind of all tend to have this commonality of three essential steps. The first step, as I mentioned, is identifying limiting belief, and that can be the most difficult step. Yeah. But, you know, you can get there if you do a bit of digging around. And one way to do that, well, one way is, you know, get my book and I'll take you through the top seven. That helps. That's 80% of the battle. Right. But another way is to just listen to the things that come out of your mouth and actually start recording them, writing them down, you know. Do I say things like, uh, you have to work hard for your money. Do I say things like the rich get richer, the poor get poorer? You know, what stuff comes out of my mouth on a daily basis? Do I say things like I can't afford that? You know, that's um, really tough because they don't come out for most of us as opinions. They come out as facts, as reality. And, you know, man, I know I've, times I've been contradicted or questioned and I've questioned others for their beliefs. And, yeah. you know, people can really like get threatened by that. Yeah. So I think it's a, you know, you just bring an awareness to it. Every time I'm talking about money, you just, you have the person who's talking and then you also have the witness who mm. goes, look at what I'm saying. Yeah. That's huge. <laughs> just look at it. Yeah. And so you could just jot them down. You don't have to like jump into changing anything right away, but just like notice. What am I saying? Another way it shows up is like somebody's talking to you and they're saying that stuff and you find yourself nodding your head going, yeah, wow, that's right. That's how it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God, yeah. that's great. So that's step one, identify. Mm -hmm. Step two is weaken the current belief, the limiting belief. If you have a belief that money is hard to make, you want to try and, and weaken that. And there's a few ways that you can do it the way that I do it in the book because I basically take people through all three steps in the book is I argue the counter case 
So I gather as much evidence as I can, and I, I love doing research because that's my training. So, you know, I gathered academic evidence, statistical evidence, as much evidence as I could find that argued against each one of these seven beliefs so that the mind can start to go, oh, okay, so it's not true for everyone. It's not true all the time. It's not true in every situation. So we're kind of cracking the back of the absoluteness of the belief. And that's kind of really important step to take. And then the third step is overwrite the belief with a new belief and overwrite the behavior you've got with a new behavior. And that is where things like a vision board, affirmations, all of that stuff is really useful. You know, visualizing is the language of the subconscious mind. Pictures, feelings, feeling the state that you'd like to get into, all of those things are really, really important. And they're step number three. And if you haven't done step one or step two, so you don't know what belief you're weakening and you haven't weakened it, then step three can often fail. The analogy I like to use is that it's like putting wallpaper on a moldy wall. The mold is still going to grow underneath that wallpaper. So it's really important that you clean the wall first before you put the wallpaper on. And the wallpaper is like your affirmation or your vision board or whatever. Gosh, it really is. It's like one step forwards and one step back. There's a lot of that. I'm seeing it. I feel it. I visualize it. But yeah, if the belief is contradictory to that, you're just kind of revving your engine and not moving. Your subconscious wins every single time. Yeah. Every single time. Because people don't understand often the immense processing power of the subconscious mind. We're used to using our conscious mind, which is really a blunt tool when it comes to processing power. You know, say you're looking at, you know, a 500-bit processor in your conscious mind. You know, your subconscious mind is like 500 gigabits. You wow. Know? That makes, I mean, that makes so so much sense. Oh, so much sense. But, you know, I think the good thing is I I love this step, too, is like almost creating an internal argument, like making a case that against the the limiting belief is that I think today, more now than any time in our history, we have evidence to counter our beliefs. There are so many just amazing people doing extraordinary things that people probably didn't even think possible even 10, 20 years ago. Absolutely. And yet we can still tell ourselves... You know, will that work for them because ABC, you know, it's like one that comes up all the time and I'm not saying it's not valid. Okay. Just that it comes up all the time is, well, I didn't have the same opportunities in life as that person. Yeah. Right. You know, and that may actually be true. You may not have had the same opportunities in life, but you do have an opportunity to revise your beliefs just like anybody else. And, you know, you can come from behind and actually create enormous prosperity in your life just by doing that one simple thing, which is revising your belief structure. No matter where you're starting from, you are the only one who can take charge of your life. So you've got to start wherever it is that you're starting. But if you don't revise the beliefs that you inherited as a child about why you can't get further than where you are now, then you're not going to get any further than where you are now. Absolutely. Oh, that's it's so great. So you mentioned something before the call that I want to make sure we touch on is talking about the word just abundance in general. You kind of pointed out that you can be wealthy or have a lot of money in the bank account and still not be considered abundant. Can you speak yeah, about that? Absolutely. It's interesting when I wanted to write this book and I was still kind of forming, you know, the concept. I spoke to a friend of mine who was the editor of a magazine in Australia called Wealth Creator. So this guy had interviewed, you know, many, many millionaires and billionaires for his magazine, including Richard Branson and Rupert Murdoch and a bunch of other people. And I said to him, so, you know, I'm really interested in this idea of abundance, but tell me, you know, of all these people that you've interviewed, what's their number one motivation? You know, how do they ascribe gaining their wealth to what do they ascribe it to? And he said, well, you know, there are a few exceptions. 
I think he actually mentioned Richard Branson as one of the exceptions to this rule. But he said most of them, I'd say nine out of ten of them, are not motivated by, you know, wanting abundance and freedom in their life. You know, because they get to the point where they're that rich. They got that ages ago. They're not still motivated by that. Most of them are motivated by wanting to be number one. Hmm. So they're motivated by competition. And he said the thing that I saw was that, you know, that's totally not satisfying for them because you never can be number one. Somebody always has a bigger yacht or a taller skyscraper or whatever, right? So there's no rest in that. And that really got me thinking about that core belief of scarcity because you can have people who are really in the scarcity mindset. They're still afraid. They're still driven to compete rather than collaborate. They're still jealous. They're still, you know, have these negative kind of character traits around money, but they're rich. So, you know, the key indicator of an abundant mindset is not, money in itself it's the way you are with your money Hmm. and you know when i have met truly abundant people they have a way that they are and one of the key characteristics of that is they collaborate they're cooperative they want to see everybody succeed they're generous with their time they're generous with their money they're very philanthropic you know they care And they're generally abundant because they care, because they're really focused on that value exchange of creating value and being of service to other people. And that value and service they create has also a monetary value. So, you know, money flows to them naturally. But the first thing they're focused on is creating value and and being of service. Gosh, I love that. What would you say that you're most motivated by today? Absolutely service. Mm. You know, I've come to understand that when I focus on service and I focus on, you know, what makes me feel good and what makes me feel good is basically sharing things that I've learned, helping people understand stuff more deeply, which is, you know, why I wrote my book, why I write my blog, why I do all of the stuff that I do in this space is because I want to contribute in a positive way to the conversation. I want people to have a better life. And, you know, money flows to me as a result of my service. That's so awesome. For no other reason, I think. It's it's so great. I love that. Okay. So to the person who I, I think this is the biggest thing that I struggle with, and it was such a subconscious thing. It was something that for a long time I don't think it was like the logical ego mind would say like, no, that's not true. That's not a belief, but is the self-worth and deserving issue. I see it a lot in my students. They'll actually start to admit it. They're like, I think it's a self-worthiness issue or a not being able to deserve this. Things where they'll sabotage a launch or know they should be doing something, but they find a way to keep putting it off. What's the yeah. short message you have to someone around that? Because I I think that worthiness is such a prevalent belief and I think it transcends even money. Like people think they're not deserving of the perfect partner or love or that home or, you know, health and stuff. What do you say to that? I think it is such a deep wound. Yeah. And, you know, I talked about the scarcity belief being kind of the core belief of this whole belief system that is the seven money myths. And when you dig underneath the scarcity belief. So the scarcity belief is essentially there is not enough. And you dig even deeper underneath that to the identity belief. It is I am not enough. Mm. So when you're coming from I am not enough, just the way that I am, I have to do something to prove my worth. I have to do something to justify my existence. I have to do something to, you know, even have the most basic level of survival and enjoyment in my life then you know you're going to be caught in a trap of never having the ease and freedom and choice and abundance that is actually possible it's so hard to believe that when you think that you're not enough and you're not deserving well not only that but we also there (laughs) we don't really put a metric in place for when we what will determine when we finally are enough so it just becomes this endless 
endless game where no matter what you do, and we've all had right. experiences that where you do this thing because you think it will prove something or label yeah. you this, or you'll finally get there. And then you do it and you're like, yeah. oh, I'm no different yeah. than I was five I minutes. I still have that feeling. Yeah. That indefined feeling of I've got to do more. It's not enough yet. Yeah. And so I think it is a very deep wound. And the healing of that wound is a profound thing to achieve in your life. And I've had that wound, absolutely. And I'm Mm. not sure that, you know, I've completely healed that wound. But recently, I came across a really wonderful practice. Because I think that that wound occurs at a really young age, like before we can even speak or understand. Like, And it might be nobody's fault. You know, like we're left crying for a little bit too long as a baby or whatever. Like, you know, our mother cuddled us for like six hours and then put us down for 10 minutes. And we experienced (sighs) that like some terrible, awful separation or something. Like it can be nobody's fault. And yet we acquired this wound of, you know, kind of abandonment, you know. And what I've done recently is visualize myself as a baby. I'm being held by this beautiful, loving mother who's like a goddess. And she's looking into my eyes, and her eyes are just exuding love. And I'm completely safe, and I'm cradled in her arms. And I just drink in this motherly love and nurturing. And I kind of do that now as a little meditation. And I'm finding that that is really helping me heal this wound of I'm not enough. Wow. Well, first of all, I want to say I acknowledge you for sharing and admitting that there may still be remnants of that wound because I feel the same way. Like I've had an awareness and an understanding of this belief for several years now. And I still feel like, you know, like, I don't know. It's like sometimes when you're doing something you've never done before or like, something bigger and you, like you start to question again. It's like new level, new devil. And yeah. so thank you for sharing that. I don't think we ever want to assume to our listeners that we're all perfect, enlightened beings with no human faults or error. But also that is an amazing visualization. That's incredible. Yeah, it's really helping me. And look, I didn't come up with it myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a spiritual teacher named Ama mm-hmm. and She's a beautiful Indian lady who hugs people. Wow. Anyway, I've been getting hugs from her for over 20 years, and and they're just amazing. But this year, I saw her in April, and I was really struggling with this particular wound, partly because my dad was dying. And, you know, I had a bit of a fraught relationship with my dad. He drank a lot, and, you know, it was complicated. Yeah. (laughs) Put it that way. And it was really bringing this wound up for me. And when I got a hug with her this year, she kind of tilted my head like that when she was hugging me so that I felt like a baby. And she looked at me like that with that love. And I went, oh, yeah. And so I've just been using that as a visualization ever since. And I really felt like that was filling that wound up and healing it. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, there's a term I learned a long time ago a concept of all time is now you're familiar with that yeah yeah and i just that's always stuck in my mind and it's so fascinating when i hear things like this cuz i feel like it's an opportunity to heal a part of us like almost in the linear timeline of our lives like yeah if that was a moment in our you know young childhood or as a baby that that's yeah. still like active in you today absolutely yeah playing out on so many levels yeah and yeah you know sometimes when we're triggered or when that a threat of worthiness comes up it's that little kid that's the one that's coming forth and you know it's And, and we do a lot of reaction out of our child yeah out of our inner child and you know often it's not the best reaction <laughs> totally you know, and then we, you regret the it situation. yeah but, but this it's such a fascinating like all of this is so fascinating to me because i feel like if i had a conversation with most people in their their that logical mind right the conscious brain would logically say no no i know i'm worthy like i, I that's yeah. i get it like totally yeah but it's a big difference to like 
conceptually, logically tell yourself, it makes sense, I'm worthy. But if there's a part of you or in the subconscious... Yeah, that felt sense. That, yeah, you feel it. You yeah. feel it in your body. You know what's true. Yeah. And um, Exactly. Gosh, that's and I think, you know, the thing to understand is that a lot of these programs were taken on pre-language. So, mm. you know, often they're not even stored in our cognitive anywhere. Often they're stored in the body. Yeah. You know, and often our body is a really strong indicator. And of course, that was a lot of the work of Louise Hay, you can heal your life, you can heal your body, showing how, you know, this deep stuff can show up in areas of tension or dis-ease in our body. So that's another big indicator apart from frustration is if you're having a lot of tension and difficulty and pain and problems in your body, that's another indicator that you may have some subconscious beliefs on board that could do with healing. Wow. Yeah. And I did another episode about just about a year ago where I was on a trip with my wife and my back went out. It was bad. Like it was bad. Like we were ready. She was either like, we're in Croatia. So she's like, we're either going to get a surgery in Croatia or we're going home like seven days into a 30 day trip. And I read a phenomenal book called the great pain deception. And the whole book talks about how it's real pain. And that's what frustrates a lot of people is, is like, we're not saying that it's not, you're not making it up. You're not making it up. But what we're looking for is the source of that pain. What's the cause of that pain. And it was absolutely unexpressed emotion, repressed emotion. Man, when I worked through that, I went from not like in tears, like grown man crying. I was in so much pain. I couldn't move. I was so angry. I was so frustrated. I was stuck on a bed. I couldn't move to two days later. I'm jumping off of a boat into the, to the water, like doing backstrokes, you know, it's, wow. it was miraculous. Yeah, so I, I, it really was like, I've never had anything that miraculous happen in my life like that. Yeah. But that's a really great point to add is it's like, look for the frustration in areas of your life. And as those are indicators of where these limiting beliefs might be, but also look to, and use that like as a portal. The frustration is the door. Gosh, but also you're saying like frustration in your physical body as well. Absolutely. That's another door. These are all doorways. And if you learn how to dig at that doorway, you know, because your body, your spirit are giving you clues And if you take the approach of being a detective, then when you experience frustration or lack of flow or physical pain or, you know, something that you don't want in your life, you can go, oh, a clue. And actually, these days I get a little bit excited. Yes, I do (laughs) as well. A clue. Because this means if I find out what this is and I change the belief about it that isn't helping me, I know now how much... Talk about leverage. This one little tweak of changing a belief can change everything, you know? But here's the biggest thing, I think, is that, first of all, we realize that we're not broken, that there's not something, like, wrong with us, that these were these beliefs adopted from such an early age. And as you're saying it, you're saying it, Julie, like, being the the Sherlock Holmes, you get to discover the beliefs and change them. So you're the one changing them in the first place. Yeah. And that's powerful. Like that is so powerful. So there's nothing like that's. I think that's what's made me excited. I think that's why you're excited when you find these is you're like, it's not like, Oh, there's something wrong with me. This is permanent. I'm broken. There's some like evil entity inside of me. I'm stuck this way for life. It's like, no, I have the ability to develop the awareness to uncover these things and do something about them. Yeah. That's and exciting. there's so many positives in that process too. You know, like usually we take on a belief in childhood because it's protective of us in some way. Right. There's always a positive service to the belief. So we never take anything on that, you know, we think is going to damage us. But sometimes it's only protective in the short term. Yes. And boy, as, a, and as it, an entrepreneur. And it, protect, it protects us as a child, but not as an adult. Yeah. Or, you know. As an entrepreneur, there's so many things that we have to do that are 
scary outside our comfort zone, different, putting us yeah. on the line. Like you have to face failure. You have to face that rejection and yeah. those beliefs of a, of a young child about safety and protection just will not serve you there. So exactly. So it's God. about identifying what beliefs serve me and what don't not good and bad. Does it serve me now? It may have served me once, but does it serve me now? And yeah. if the answer is no, then you get to change it. Gosh, I love it. It's like, you know, your software. Belief change is like a software update. I mean, nobody gets their device and never updates the software. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. Because there's bugs in that stuff. Yeah. Right? That's so true. And they're, you know, constantly fixing the bugs and sending you updates so that you can have a bug-free device. Well, we're a device with bugs. Yeah. And that's not right or wrong. You know, that code was in there for certain functionality that doesn't apply anymore. And we just need to update it. Yeah. Gosh, I love it. So the book is The Abundance Code, How to Bust the Seven Money Myths for a Rich Life Now. Julie Cairns, thank you so much. Do you have any final words or any other thoughts that have come up for you before we wrap up? Well, I want to just direct people to the book website, which is theabundancecodebook.com. There's a free five-part video series there, nothing for sale at all just going through what are the seven money myths so if people are interested in that and the book is available on Amazon and I do want to share one last thing which is a quote from Carl Jung and Mm. Carl Jung of course is the granddaddy of working with the subconscious mind and this quote is until you make the unconscious conscious it will direct your life and you will call it fate wow I love it Julie thank you so much for taking the time to share all of your knowledge and wisdom. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'll have theabundancecodebook.com and everything else that we mentioned, including the power of your subconscious mind, linked up in the show notes for this episode. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Are you a coach, course creator, or online influencer looking for an easier way to expand your reach, help more people, and get paid while you do it? I've built a multiple seven-figure business around my content, courses, memberships, and mastermind. And I'm going to give you the exact processes that show you how I did it. So if you currently feel stuck, stagnant, overwhelmed, or coursed the F out, this is the training that's going to graduate you from student mode into action mode. To join the party absolutely free, simply visit www.jameswedmore.com forward slash go.